We are in Twin Falls, Idaho today, and we have a guest all the way down from Florida. I'm super excited. I've been talking to him before the show. And I, one thing I want to do today is I want to thank our wonderful viewers and listeners. Um, I just got a message from a guy from Italy today. Lucia, I hope I am not murdering your name. Um, he's a guy that watches from Italy, and he actually asked me a question about something that we're going to actually talk about in the show today about birth control pills and vasectomies. Welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your story, um, where, you, where, you gradu- where you went to medical school, where you graduated, did residency, all that kind of stuff. Tell us about your story. Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm a first-generation uh, medicine practitioner, uh, doctor in my family. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in Roscoe, Illinois, about 6,000 people. Uh, neither of my parents were in medicine. I, I went through you know, University of Illinois and then uh, Rush Presbyterian Medical uh, Center uh, through for college and then uh, medical school and uh, Rush is on the west side of Chicago um, and then moved down to uh, Florida, the Tampa area for uh, urologic surgery training uh, in Tampa, Florida at USF um, and then you know completed some research with uh, Boston Scientific uh, Research Fellowship and, and have started a practice uh, in the, the Tampa, greater, greater Tampa area, I guess, uh, be, be opening, uh, my own practice here shortly, uh, you know, in the Sarasota, Florida area. You're looking at making some transitions in your practice right now. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I, I used to work for, uh, you know, a corporate hospital situation and, and I'm going to be opening my own direct pay urology practice here shortly in the, again, in the Sarasota, Florida area. Uh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to you know, kind of getting back to serving patients directly and and spending you know the time that I need to spend with them, the time that they need to spend, the the you know doing whatever I can to add value to their medical care. So tell us what this direct care thing you're talking about is. And we've had a lot of direct primary care um, physicians on our podcast before, but tell us what this direct care model and especially practice is like. Well, that's a great question. I mean, there's not a lot out there, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, uh, again, like you said, it's more, a little bit more of a, a primary care phenomenon now. But, you know, the reality is, is I think that, um, you know, if you if you truly look at the financials of medical uh, treatment, medical care these days, there there is about a 34% surcharge in administrative fees uh, on the money that you spend in your in your current care. Uh, because of you know insurance and governmental regulations, um, and so that by that I mean 34% of your dollar actually goes somewhere other than, and actually it gets even higher than that if you look at truly what your physician is making, what your healing team is making. You know the physician is probably making about seven to nine cents. The the healing team is probably making somewhere around uh, 27% or 27 cents on the dollar of what you're spending in medical care costs. And so the direct pay model is, is really geared towards number one, getting back to the value of the, of the doctor, the physician patient relationship, uh, and, and adding that and boosting that as much as possible. Uh, because remember right now, uh, physicians spend probably two out of every three hours doing documentation and paperwork to satisfy insurance requirements, to satisfy different regulations that are out there. And so if, if, if I, as a physician, can cut out that extra two hours and cut out that 73% of, of the hours that I take uh, and spend it with you and also cut out that 73% of the cost and, and return some of that cost savings to you as the patient and still deliver either as great or even greater care uh, then I think that holds huge value for everyone involved. Yeah, for sure. And we had Dr. Lee Gross on last week, and he said basically the same numbers, that 70% of the cost of medical care has nothing to do with patient care. Only about 30% of it is really patient care related. So kudos to you for um, you know going out and, and on your own and doing this model because the direct primary care um, practitioners, they will love that because they've always want they always want specialists that they can refer to that don't they don't have to deal with all the insurance stuff because they know that they're going to get better care at a less expensive price and and you know possibly better qual probably better quality you know so um, and I know that just 
doesn't make a lot of sense to people, but that's why we have this podcast is to educate and empower individuals that they do have options. And many times their insurance option, even if the insurance does pay, it's going to be more expensive that way with a copay. So going to somebody that doesn't even just skirts around the whole insurance issue saves them a lot of money. So I appreciate it. So are you ready to get into some clinical stuff? Absolutely, sir. Let's see. Yeah. So, um, okay, common question we get in our practice. So at Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy, we are specialists in hormone compounding. We do a lot of hormone balancing. It is over 85% of our practice. And my wife and I are both very passionate in it. My wife, of course, um, as your listeners and viewers know, is a, is, a, is a pharmacist also like I am. And we just have a wonderful team that just, you know, we really focus on hormone compounding and hormone balancing. So... And one of the common questions, in fact, I got one today um, about this, is that there's a we have a a woman and she's on birth control pills. <clears throat> Typically, the average patient on in this situation is in her 40s or so, and she's on birth control pills, and she's having hormone-related problems, i.e., she's not sleeping, i.e., she has decreased libido, i.e., she has vaginal dryness. Um, all kinds of different symptoms that are related to hormone imbalance. And a question I will get is like, okay, when should we check her hormones? Or I checked her hormones and here what her, here's what their levels are. And um, so first of all, um, if a woman is on birth control pills, in my opinion, a hormone test is a waste of time and money. Because it is going to be totally skewed, right? It's going to be totally skewed. So, um, the first question I ask in those situations, because when they're that age and they're on birth control pills, I don't like birth control pills long term anyway, um, because I see in my practice how often birth control pills or any, not, and not just birth control pills, but Depo-Provera shot or you know Marina IUD, anything that is hormone related to help with birth to to um, be birth control, I see a lot of issues that it causes um, for women. So my first op my first um, question is like, okay, why can't she go off birth control? So the common question is, is like, then I'll say is, okay, so is she, is she in a long-term relationship? Is she married? Yeah, she's married and has two kids. Okay. So then my next statement is, okay, she's married and has kids and she's on birth control. Why? Her husband needs a vasectomy. All right, Dr. Wallen, go. Why should her husband get a vasectomy? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is you kind of uh, alluded to it already, right? I mean, the long-term side effects of birth control, I mean, remember, birth controls are usually composed of hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and basically what you're doing is you're, you're blunting the normal cycles that women usually have. You're blunting nature, and you're basically kind of delivering them a, a more stable level so that way they don't cycle like they usually would. And so that's why, you know, usually – at the end of these birth control packs, there's kind of a, a, a period of kind of fake pills that, you know, basically allows the, the patient to cycle again and, and menstruate and, and slough off the lining and what have you. And so the reality is, is that, you know, you're messing with nature, right, already. We know there's, there's long-term side effects. You've already listed them for us. Uh, the reality of why a vasectomy is such a great option is because for the most part, it's pretty darn easy. I mean, yes, it takes, you know, there is a little bit of recovery. There's probably about a, a, a one-week period of no heavy lifting, no vigorous activity, no sexual activity, and, and you know, you do have to stay out of anywhere where you're soaking your tiny little incision in, in water, like a bath, pool, hot tub, or what have you, until the incision heals. But otherwise, because of the fact that the, the testicles are, are external to the abdominal cavity, to the pelvis, and they're really just contained in a, in a kind of a sack, for the lack of a better term, of skin, it makes it a very easy procedure. Uh, it's routinely uh, probably about a 15 to 30-minute procedure in the office. Uh, you know, ultimately, the patient is numb. The patient gets some uh, anesthesia in the form of Valium or, or other anesthetics like nitrous, where it's almost like laughing gas, right, like a dentist uses um, to keep them very comfortable. Uh, a tiny little incision. It depends on which surgeon you go to, but usually it's either one tiny little incision in the front side of the scrotum or maybe two, one on each side. And basically all you're really doing is, is if, if this is the testicle, 
the, the little core structure that comes down, now remember that the testicles actually start by the kidneys uh, when we're in utero in our mothers. And you know, usually by the time we're born or shortly thereafter, within the first year, they migrate into the scrotum. With that comes uh, basically you know, blood vessel, artery, vein, and then also the little vas deferens tube. The vas deferens tube is the sperm highway. It carries sperm from the testicle to the uh, prostate and seminal vesicles where there's, it's basically dumped into the urethra and then that's how it's mixed into the ejaculate fluid. And so all we're really doing is kind of grabbing that little vas deferens, cutting out a piece. Uh, in my hands, I usually kind of burnt, cauterize both ends uh, to make sure that the, the little tubes kind of can't come back together and reseal together which you know, is exceedingly rare, but has been documented. Okay. And then I put a little suture stitch around one of the ends and, and then you know, do one on each side, obviously, to cut out, interrupt the tube, interrupt the sperm highway. And then that's pretty much it. You just have to couple little dissolvable stitches in the, in the skin and you know, a period of, of a time where the, the patient has to be careful to, because I mean, the, the one issue with vasectomy that does occur other than, uh, and actually, the vast difference, you could ask, how, how do you figure out which is the vast difference, which is the artery, which is the vein? Well, the vast difference is almost like al dente spaghetti. It's, it's truly a hard kind of uh, tube that you can feel easily and grasp. And so, you know, from that standpoint, uh, it's pretty easily identifiable. So there, there are always risks with procedures, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a pretty minor procedure to be done and, and is usually... I think by and large throughout the country should be done as an office-based procedure, which, you know, again, getting back to the cost savings, if you don't have to go to the hospital, if you don't have to use OR time in the surgery uh, or in the surgery center, if you don't have to have an anesthesia provider, because we can do it with either oral sedation and local anesthesia or, you know, uh, inhaled anesthesia in the form of nitrous, then you know that is a huge ability to kind of save on costs for the patient as well. Well, and convenience, and you know, just going to a hospital period. There's just a lot of risk involved with that. Nosocomial infections, and you know, that's very rare, but still, yeah. there, there's a there's definitely a risk. So, especially well, during a, a public health emergency pandemic, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of people who are have to be in the hospital for for sick conditions right now. Uh, if you don't ever have to walk in the door, you know, you're, you're probably at much uh, lower risk for being exposed to any of those things. Okay, so I was listening the other day and no, no scalpel vasectomy. I was trying to do that in my head. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing because there's got to be something that actually penetrates the scrotum, right? So sure. tell us about that. <laughs> that is actually, uh, that's a very good marketing ploy. Uh, okay. <laughs> ultimately, what a no-scalpel vasectomy is, you know, they don't use a scalpel, but what they do is they basically kind of grasp the little tube because, again, you can feel the tube through the skin. You, they grasp the little tube through the skin and kind of put a little kind of ring forceps around it and just kind of hold it in position. And then there's basically a little, almost like a little spreader device um, that is actually a pretty sharp tip on it, and it basically kind of spreads the skin open. So, yes, they don't do, uh, they don't necessarily use a scalpel. But, uh, you know, the reality is, is that they still have to make a little cut in the skin to get the tube and, right. and to remove right. a little section of the tube and what have you, um, you know, uh, whatever works. And, and again, it's a, it's a, it works for people because, again, anytime you don't have to think about scalpels or needles or, or what have you, uh, again, it's, it's one thing for me or other uro- urologic surgeons to do these types of procedures because uh, we do them routinely every day, and and to some extent, it's not us that's getting it done in those procedures, right? But for the average everyday person who never, well, most men don't want to see a doctor in the first place, let alone right. the fact that you know they have to have a procedure done, and then you start talking about scalpels and needles and all this stuff, and and you know it's it's anxiety provoking, and so you know I think uh, I think it's a good marketing uh, situation to be able to kind of keep people at ease and more even keel and not make it so much of a stressful process. Uh, but yes, they still have to do, you know, kind of the same general techniques just with, you know, with different instruments. So what are some questions that you would ask a patient before you would give them a vasectomy of like, you know, age, if they had kids, if they're married, all that kind of stuff, go through that with us, educate our viewers on that. Right. So, I mean, the reality is, is, um, you know, anybody can get it done. There's not really any specific regulations as far as age wise. I mean, certainly 
anytime I talk to a patient about getting a vasectomy done, we always discuss the fact that in my consent form specifically says this is irreversible. Uh, and the main reason for that is because if you're already thinking about having it reversed, we really probably shouldn't be doing the procedure in the first place. Um, because the, although the reversal can be successful and is much more likely to be successful if it's closer to the initial time that you got your vasectomy performed in years. So if it's, if it's two or three years afterwards, it's much more likely to be successful than if it's 15 years after you got a vasectomy performed. Um, but I mean, again, the, the reality is, is that, um, you know, if you're already thinking about having a reverse, we typically don't, wouldn't do a procedure on you. Um, however, uh, obviously there's, you know, many young men who say, I don't want to have kids, you know, uh, it doesn't matter for whatever situation. Uh, we understand that, you know, again, I always counsel people it's, it's irreversible and, and certainly usually most folks get at least a 24 to 48 hour period, but between the consultation time and when we actually do the procedure to be able to kind of perseverate on that a little bit and kind of just, you know, be certain that that's what they want to do. Um, otherwise, certainly, you know, like you mentioned, we do talk about, you know, if they have kids, you know, certainly if they have more kids, uh, it's it's a little bit less likely that they're going to want to reverse uh, in the end. But remember, there still is, you know, somewhere between a 50 to 75 percent rate of divorce. Right. And so, um, you know, you talk about changing relationships and potentially your future partner wanting to have uh, children or what have you that could always come into play. Um, you know, certainly uh, marriage status isn't a requirement, but uh, we do certainly usually ask those questions. Um, but otherwise, it's really just kind of screening stuff about their health. And if they're on any supplements to make sure they're not going to have bleeding risks, because certainly supplements like vitamin E, fish oils, some of these other things, anti-inflammatories like like uh, ibuprofen and et cetera, mm-hmm. um, can certainly predispose you to have bleeding issues. And remember, uh, again, one of the, one of the not necessarily common, but one of the problematic risks of a vasectomy is if you get a little bit of bleeding in the scrotum uh, after the procedure, you know that scrotum does doesn't really limit it, right? It's kind of like an empty water balloon, and it will kind of stretch because it's extra skin, and so that can cause a patient's kind of recovery to go from you know one week to you know up to six to eight weeks or maybe in a little bit longer just because if they end up with a little, you know, kind of minor collection of blood underneath the skin. Um, so we certainly are very careful about that. And that's part of the reason we, we aggressively talk to them about, you know, no lifting greater than 10 to 15 pounds, et cetera. And, and usually use some form of jock strap and compression afterwards to, to kind of really prevent those things. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's really just kind of talking to them about the, the procedure itself, putting them at that ease that we're going to do everything we can to keep it comfortable and, and make sure that they get a, an easy, gentle procedure and, 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 you know, we'll use numbing medications to, to cancel out any self, uh, sharp pains. Uh, again, usually I think it's, um, although I've done it with just numbing medication, I, I think most guys do a little bit better, uh, with a little sedative and oral sedative. Again, to some extent, it's a little bit psychological uh, thing, you know, it's seen and you got a little bit of an extra kind of even keelness to you, um, you know, that that certainly helps. um, And that makes it a much easier procedure, both on the patient, but also, you know, for me, because one of the problems that can occur is that if if the patient's really tense, there are little muscles that regulate, remember the testicles kind of regulate up and down for temperature purposes to preserve spermatogenesis or preserve the production of sperm. Um, and those, that's regulated by little muscles that are attached to the backside of the abdominal wall. And so if you're tense and you're really anxious, you, you know, you can right. do things and I kind of have to do one of these things to be able to find <laughs> food. And, and so we're basically kind of doing a little tug of war, but, but a tug of war is with your testicle and, and that's not always the most comfortable thing in the world. So we, that's where, you know, again, the sedatives or, or nitrous or what have you to kind of keep people comfortable and safe are, are certainly helpful. So after they recover from the minor procedure, are there any, um, you know, sexual side effects like erectile dysfunction or, you know, lack of or- ability to orgasm, things like that? I, I, You know, you see that in the literature, decreased testosterone um, levels after vasectomy. Can you comment on those? That's a great question. So, you know, the reality is I, I, um, 
I, I know there's there's even actually you, you didn't mention it, but there's even some literature that that may suggest that there's potentially some small increase in prostate cancer uh, if you have a vasectomy. Um, you know, quite honestly, remember the the hormones like testosterone don't even go through that tube, right? They don't go through the vas deferens. That's a strictly a sperm highway, right? Um, and so they they actually diffuse into your bloodstream through the little arteries and veins. Uh, to the testicle and and actually kind of just locally can can diffuse to the surrounding tissues as well. So unless there's some damage to the arteries and veins and and for some reason the testicle kind of shrinks up, which again is a very very rare complication, um, you know, then I don't see that the hormone imbalance is really uh, truly holds much weight. I don't I don't really think that the prostate cancer thing is is all that valid. Uh, again, to some extent. Every time you see a new research study, there's always, you know, findings. And, and to some extent, although it's not quite as sensationalized as the media, you know, the the snapshot at the top of the of the paper is always, to some extent, kind of provoking for interest, right? And so right. <laughs> uh, the title, that is, is, is kind of provoking for interest. And so, you know, to some extent, they, they get creative with those. But, but uh, the reality is, I think that uh, long-term sexual side effects of vasectomy are significantly rare. Um, you know, there is some some small subset, maybe less than one percent, where you get some minor testicular pain. The the chance of it harming your erection should be almost non-existent because we're not even anywhere near any of the nerves, arteries, or veins that control an erection. Um, and and remember, actually, up to eighty-five percent, ninety percent of your fluid, the ejaculate fluid, that is, is actually from the prostate and seminal vesicles, which is far away from where we're messing. So. The only thing that really should be interrupted is no sperm in the ejaculate fluid, which, you know, just means no babies. It, it really shouldn't mean any other major changes to your sexual life. Right. Right. That makes that makes total sense. So thank you for clearing that up. There's a lot of information there. Wow. That was a lot there. So thank you so much. Um, and so the next thing I want to move on to is um, unique unique treatments for erectile dysfunction. And let's just, before we go into those unique treatments for erectile dysfunction, go over your typical protocol um, consultation of what you would talk to a patient about if they had erectile dysfunction. And, um, you know, then your typical treatment, you know, starting with the phosphodiesterase inhibitors and then, you know, um, maybe all prostatal injections and then to the penile implants. So go, go through that about erectile dysfunction and some, some causes. Cause it's not just, it's not always a, um, it's not always a physical cause either. So I'm assuming that you go into that. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. So, I mean, the reality is, uh, first of all, organically, the, the penis is basically an inflatable rod, right? So you need good blood flow in to fill it up and stretch it out. And you need little valves to close the veins to close, to keep you nice and stiff. And that's usually a process that happens with stimulation, that goes away after the ejaculation orgasm response occurs. That's natural for us. Unfortunately for men, usually that response is faster than women's ejaculatory or orgasm response. And so obviously there's there's a whole another subset of stuff we could talk about about that as far as you know stimulation of the clitoris and, and penile stimulation of the vagina really not being a great way to make a woman orgasm. But uh, to circle back to the erectile dysfunction, you know, certainly we talk about psychosocial stressors. I mean, if your relationship is not good and you're constantly fighting with your, your significant other, you know, that's not going to help. Or if you're stressed out at work and that, and, and because you got so many uh, on your plate and there's, you know, financial crises or what have you, all the, all the different things that can happen in the world. Remember what, what needs to happen in, for, in order for the, 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 arteries to fill and the, and the stiffness to occur is that the, the blood vessels need to dilate. And so that way more blood flow can get to the penis in the first place. If you're stressed out and, and anxious and, and, you know, constantly under pressure or depressed or what have you, those blood vessels clamp. And so that makes it, you know, certainly a situation where that makes it difficult for a good erection, good stiff erection to occur. And so that can be part of it. Um, but, you know, beyond that, again, organically, you know, we, we go through and talk about all the other typical types of, of uh, medical problems that people have, whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure or, you know, any number of things, whether they've had prostate cancer surgery or bladder cancer surgery or, you know, bladder removal surgery, all these types of things, any type of pelvis surgery, colon and rectal surgery, 
Um, if they have scar tissue disorders of the penis, like Peyronie's, where you get a little bit of curvature, that can cause problems with the little valves. Um, but you know, the, the reality is, is screening through all of that, plus also screening through all of the bad things that we do to ourselves, like smoking and alcohol excess use and drugs and, and, you know, these types of things, um, you know, um, also, uh, you know, certainly talking to folks about their, their heart function. Um, a, lot, a very common subset of patients that we see with erectile dysfunction are, are those with coronary artery disease. And actually, mm-hmm. in fact, we know that uh, through studies, we know that erectile dysfunction is actually up to a, uh, a three to five year indicator of, of potential heart outcome, poor outcomes. Um, and really the main thing, the main reason, the main way you can kind of think about that is that actually the blood vessels to the penis are about half the size as the blood vessels to the heart. And so, you know, usually there's a lot of folks out there that have heart attacks or, or what have you, uh, have coronary artery disease in the family. And so remember, in order for uh, a blockage in your heart or your blood vessel to be significant, it has to be more than 70%. Well, that 70% blockage in your heart would actually completely occlude downstairs the artery to the penis because remember, it's yeah. half the size. And so that's where we can kind of catch catch potential problems with the heart early uh, by kind of screening people and talking to them. That's why I always tell actually all the primaries I talk to, if you're not asking their patient, your male patients about their erection and you're not screening them for testosterone, we know that testosterone is also a, an independent risk factor for bad cardiovascular outcomes, low testosterone that is. And so if you're not asking about those, you're missing an opportunity to catch these men early. And so we talk about all these things because, you know, certainly even diabetes uh, is very common, especially more common in, in our population as people get old, uh, People get more and more obese, um, which our, our population seems to be doing, unfortunately. You know, all of these things play a role, so we got to talk about those. You know, we talk about all that stuff. We talk about, you know, like you mentioned, um, the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, the Viagra, the Cialis, all the different medical pills out there that can be can be tried. Most of those basically just increase the amount of blood flow to actually most of your entire body, but also specifically geared towards increasing the blood flow to the penis and, and to kind of increase the, the pressure. Remember, more pressure, more volume equals more pressure, more pressure equals rigidity, right? And so that's the goal in, the, in terms of an erection. And so that's usually the first line. But, but also, remember, we talk to people about behavioral characteristics. So, you know, following a heart-healthy diet, low salt, low sugar. Actually, nowadays, the American Heart Association says a plant-based diet is the best thing for your heart. Well, guess what? It's also the best thing for below the belt. And so, you know, from that standpoint, uh, we talk about all those things. We also talk about the fact that they recommend, you know, uh, upwards of 30 or 40, car- 40 minutes of cardiovascular activity every day. Uh, not every day, but I, I guess this, they, they used to be three days a week. Now they say at least five days a week, right? So pretty much every day. Right. Um, and so from that standpoint, getting active and not being sedentary and, you know, getting home from work and, and you know, just basically being um kind of a slug on the couch obviously that's not a good thing for anybody and so certainly again that does play a role in your hormones right if your hormones are low as you get older or for whatever reason you're you're going to be fatigued at the end of the day a lot of times and and so making sure we check your hormone levels is very important uh and so we talk about that we we go through again the the oral therapies it's usually first line although now Society of North America, so I should talk to you about every single treatment and give you the option because again, it, it's it's patient-centered therapy, right? So if you've had a prior prostatectomy for prostate cancer surgery, quite honest with you, it, even if you had what's called nerve sparing surgery, which means that they kind of sweeped away the little nerves at the bottom of the prostate that usually control erections when they took your prostate out, uh, there's still an 80% chance you're never going to have an erection right. hard enough for penetration. And, and 80% of those guys are going to fail oral medications. And so from that standpoint, the next options are a couple of things. One, there's a vacuum erection device that basically kind of slides over the top of the penis and is usually in, used in, junction with, in conjunction with a little ring at the base to kind of basically, number one, pull blood into the penis, but number two, kind of trap it there, kind of artificially recreating the valve and, and artery structure. Uh, as the penis usually has. Um, I don't find that a whole lot of people really love that option as far as an actual treatment, just because it's not as natural, Um, but it's an option. Um, Beyond that, there's little tablets or little gels that you can squeeze into the urethra, uh, and that basically diffuses the the medications to the penis, or as you mentioned, 
uh, the little injections that go directly into the side of the penis uh, that basically deliver all of the signals uh, for uh, an erection to occur. And so they basically bypass the brain and the spinal cord and, and et cetera, and, and kind of recruit as much blood to the penis as possible. Um, that is the one form of, of um, erectile dysfunction medication that could potentially lead to this four to six hour or longer erection that you may hear about on, on TV ads or online or what have you, what's called priapism. Um, that's, a, that's actually an emergency and you should, if you, if you do have a, an erection that lasts longer than four to six hours, you should get to the, you know, the nearest uh, care department, whether that's an er emergency room or what have you. Um, because basically what happens is that the, the blood flow to the penis and specifically come to the end really kind of stops. It's kind of a static state where there's no oxygen and no nutrients coming into the area. It's, it's not super common, but it is, um, you know, a little bit common, especially if you get into higher doses of those injections, it's about 10% chance. Um, beyond that, uh, as you mentioned, the penile implant, um, the penile implant, uh, for the lack of a better term, the best way I can describe it to people to make it easy for them is basically a new inner tube to, for your tire, so to speak. And so if you, and I guess, you know, whether or not, whether your, your arteries are slow and, and you don't get much blood flow to the penis anymore or not, or alternatively, whether those little valves don't close as much anymore. Again, remember, there's commonly a couple of groups, uh, Peyronie's disease patients, that's that curvature of the penis, um, diabetics, patients with prior pelvic surgery, like I mentioned, prostate cancer, bladder cancer, colorectal cancer, et cetera. Uh, or um, uh, smokers, they tend to have valve dysfunction or venous dysfunction as they get older and uh, or after their treatments. Um, and so remember, um, the, the valves, uh, the best way I can describe it to folks is, is, you know, no matter how much you pump up your tire, you still kind of have a little hole in your tire and it really just never gets quite as hard as it used to. And so the penile implant is basically a, a minor outpatient surgical procedure. Um, done usually through a tiny little incision just above the top side of the penis. Um, and basically what it is, is it's a three piece system that's it's fluid hydraulics. So it's filled with uh, sterile fluid. Um, and basically the, the three pieces are connected in, in the OR uh, during the procedure. All of it's hidden underneath the skin. You can't see any of it. Uh, but what it is, is it's a little manual um, a little manual system that's used through a little pump that's in the scrotum that uh, basically is kind of like the, the old Reebok shoe where basically, you know, you kind of squeeze it and, it and it transfers the fluid from the little reservoir into the cylinders and, and recreates that. Remember I said in the penis, more volume is more pressure, more pressure is rigidity, right? And so uh, in the penis, when the more you pump that little pump, it transfers the fluid from the reservoir to the little cylinders that are in the penis. Um, and, and basically that creates the rigidity. And so that's, you know, that's been a very uh, kind of revolutionary thing since even as recently as the 80s is, is when that was kind of really came onto the market and, and has been a beautiful thing for a lot of folks who otherwise, you know, whether they're, uh, again, uh, coronary artery disease is a very uh, common problem in our patient population in, in, in the United States and in, in the world in general. And, you know, remember, if, even if you, have to start a blood pressure medication and we drop your blood pressure from, we drop your blood pressure 10 points. There's actually uh, uh, some good data that shows that if we drop your blood pressure 10 points with a blood pressure medication, it's likely going to harm the rigidity of your, of your erection. And so at some point, you know, if, I mean, a lot of patients I see come in on three or four blood pressure medications, not just one. Right. And, and they used to be 180, 190 systolic. Wow. And now they're down in the 120s, 130s, and they're wondering why they can't get an erection. Well, I mean, think about it. If, if, the, if the pump is, is damaged to the point where, you know, you, you really have to kind of, um, kind of take off the, uh, well, not, maybe not take off, but maybe more like put the training wheels back on and kind of keep it to a little bit less of a, a more regulated situation, uh, you know, trying to be able to, to kind of, uh, kind of inflate the penis for an erection, it becomes much difficult, much more difficult. Um, and that's why their body was compensating with pressure anyway, just to get blood flow to the extremities pretty much. Correct. correct. I, I remember blood flow is usually either the pressure from the pump or the resistance from the system. And the resistance from the system is the way that they kind of usually drop the, 
drop the blood flow or drop the blood pressure one of the ways anyway. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, if it's, it's one of the compensation mechanisms. So, but so the, the, the penile implant is, is a, it's a nice procedure. It's, it's actually, you know, 60 to 80% of guys are still functional 15 to 20 years later with their device. Wow. And the satisfaction rates are super high. I mean, 90, 90 plus percent for both patient and partner uh, for that surgery. And, and, you know, again, the reality is, is it's all it is, is a, a fluid mechanism through a, a combination of a couple little pieces that basically allows you to recreate the stiffness. It should not harm your ejaculation. It should not harm your orgasm. It should not harm your sensation, at least compared to where you were before the procedure. Uh, and so, you know, obviously if there is some dysfunction there already, uh, we're not going to fix that by doing a penile implant, but we are going to fix the erectile function and, you know, it can be a very long-term solution, uh, for many, many patients. Again, I already mentioned, I mean, I didn't mention this part, which is 50 to 90% of, of cancer patients across the board, both men and women have sexual dysfunction at some point, either during their treatment or afterwards, right? I mean, whether you get surgery, whether you get chemotherapy, whether you get radiation, all of these things are meant to damage our normal cells. Our, our, well, they're not meant to damage our normal cells, but they're meant to either damage the cancer and remove it or what have you. But unfortunately, during that process, you know, there, there is some significant dysfunction that can occur to our normal tissues as well. Right. So absolutely. Um, you know, especially if you end up with prostate cancer. I mean, I've seen guys as young as, uh, I think the youngest guy I saw, I want to say he was 38 uh, and needed a prostate cancer surgery because he had some kind of aggressive looking prostate cancer in his, in his prostate. At 38, if you end up having a surgery and you have an 80% chance, you'll never have an erection hard enough to penetrate again. Uh, and, you know, no matter how beautiful your wife is or, or what have you, your partner, you know, it, unfortunately, that's a that's a pretty long time to live the rest of your life with with uh, less of a quality of life. I wouldn't say no, because obviously there's a lot of things outside of sexual intercourse that can lead to quality of life. But, uh, you know, I mean, if you're going to be around and we cured your cancer, you know, personally, in my hands, I would love to restore your quality of life, because uh, in my in my mind, that's that's part of the reason you're here is to, to enjoy the time you're here, too. Right. So. Yeah, and and it is very important. I mean, sexual health is very important. And sexual health in a relationship is very very important. And and right. you know, really, not even if you're 38, but even if you're 70, it's still important, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. guys as old as 80 plus. So. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I was reading. Again, the procedure, even that procedure, is somewhere between the order of of 30 to 60 minutes for the average, you know, kind of first time procedure type thing without any major kind of curveballs, I would say. But I mean, so the reality is, is in the grand scheme of things, if you can tolerate a short procedure with anesthesia, I mean, that opens the door for much, many more people to potentially have, uh, you know, these types of things done. And remember, actually, last year, I think probably about 2000 men in the United States had this procedure done. Uh, but remember, last year, about 20,000 women had breast implants. And so there's a huge gap there where we're, where we're missing to be able to educate men. And I, again, I think it goes back to a little bit about, you know, men don't necessarily seek care quite as much as women do. But, but to a large degree, I mean, if you look at it, uh, the, the, the only main difference I see between the two is that, you know, actually a penile implant is actually functional. Uh, you know, whereas a breast implant just kind of sits there and hangs around, the penile implant actually bends up and down and, and has you know, mechanisms of function. And actually one, there's, there's two main companies in the United States that make the, the make the devices. One of them is working on, cause obviously, you know, you start talking about these older patients. And again, I mentioned, you kind of have to, you know, do some pumping to be able to, to inflate the device. And, and one of the things that happens as we get older is our dexterity doesn't always uh, stick around so, so, so well either. Right. So there's actually one of the companies out there that's that's working on a Bluetooth technology to be able to you know, kind of activate it with with either your cell phone or with you know uh, kind of like your your car beeper, boop, boop, you know, be able to do that. And so uh, that they're looking at releasing that within the next couple of years. So that will be you know kind of the next advance to be able to kind of you know offer this to to more folks and not have to limit people. Boy, that has some interesting implications if your partner gets a hold of that phone. Uh, yeah, well, if it gets attacked, right? if it gets attacked by, 
by some hacker. All of a sudden, we got these people walking around. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious! Interesting that you mentioned it because the the reality is, I was even I, I even mentioned that in in talking discussing this this device with uh, or that that technology with some folks, and it's actually the same the same technology they use for heart defibrillators, right? And so oh, okay. those obviously have to be much more uh, secure, much more uh, ability for nobody to be able to mess with it other than the people that really need to be able to adjust it. And so they're actually, they're actually able to use the same technology as that to be able to make sure that it's secure and make sure that, that nobody else can kind of, uh, you know, kind of mess with things without your permission, so to speak. Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, speaking of sexual health, and we, we talk about it often in our pharmacy because hormone balancing is is part of that a lot of times, and the subject of sexual health always comes up. I was just uh, reading um, Suzanne Summers' book the other day. Suzanne Summers just put out a recent book. I can't remember the name. Producer, if you can look that up, her most recent book, and we'll, we'll talk about it. But she is 73, and her um, husband, who she's been married to for over 40 years, is maybe over 50 years is 84 and they have sex twice a day. So, right. yeah. So, you know, uh, the, the concept that, you know, sex is over when you're 60 or 70. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely not true. And so I appreciate you, you know, giving your expertise today um, about those issues. Cause it is, it's, it's, it's important um, up until the day we die, possibly, you know, for, for many people. Okay. So it's not everything, but it is a component of it, you know, even just for stress relief, mental health, you know, what have you. And, and remember, you know, the reality is, is uh, um, before kind of modern, modern medicine, modern times where, you know, I think it, it seems like you're very well versed in, in hormone replacement and the need for it, you know, quite honestly, um, I think what, what has happened over the years is that we have used a lot of pharmaceutical medications to treat the symptomatology of hormone loss, right? And so if you were up here when you were 20 and 30 and you start to do a little, a little curtail and, and kind of slide down on your hormones and we start adding a blood pressure medication or adding this or adding that, instead of actually stepping your hormones back up to where you were, where you were, you know, you know, even for women, you know, estrogen is huge for vaginal dryness and oh, yeah. preventing UTIs yep. and this type of thing. And if you if you lose that estrogen and we just try to throw something on top of there as a Band-Aid rather than giving you back your estrogen, I mean, part of the reason, you know, some older women don't necessarily like to have intercourse is because they've been without estrogen for so long that their their vagina is atrophic and it tears and is dry, like you said, and, and obviously that's a huge problem. But if we can restore their, their function, uh, you know, I think there is a, a good amount of quality to be gained with that. So let me tell you, as much women's health as we do, and our number one prescription is estriol vaginal cream yep. for the reasons you say. And by the way, we were just, it, what was her book's name? Uh, Suzanne Summers' book's name? A New, a-, a New Age, what was that? I want, I want to mention her. I want to mention the book's name so our listeners and viewers. We were streaming the title there. A New Way to Age, the Most Cutting Edge Advances, advances in, in Anti-Aging. So um, she's written a lot of books, and some, some are controversial. Maybe a lot are controversial, but that's okay. I think there's some good information in a lot of them, or a lot of good information in them. So um, anyway, estriol vaginal cream. I personally believe it's our number one prescription in our pharmacy. I personally believe that every postmenopausal woman should be on some type of vaginal estrogen cream because if they don't have atrophic vaginitis now they will and that's usually the first symptom they get if they don't get if they don't have chronic utis they will and they will have urinary incontinence too how many patients dr wallen are in a nursing home and they're on ditropan and they're on nitrofranatoin for urinary tract infections and for and for um for urinary incontinence. And you know what? They don't lack those drugs. They didn't have those problems in their 30s. Right. And it's amazing to me. I got to be honest with you, Dr. Wallen. There are urologists that don't get that concept. And I have to educate them. It's like, well, that's your first go-to. Why don't you think about, you know, your dictropan is your first go-to. Why don't you think about why they have urinary incontinence? Let's right. treat the problem, not just the symptom. Let's fix the problem. And obviously you fix the problem with um, topical vaginal estrogen cream. You, you fix so many other problems. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I think every postmenopausal woman should be on some type of vaginal estrogen cream. So thank you for that um, information. Now, going back on hormones. So you mentioned this, that if you're not, if you're not checking a man's testosterone, then you're definitely doing him a disservice because you're missing a lot of things because low testosterone is an indicator of cardiovascular. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I remember what exactly you said, but it's an indicator for cardiovascular risk. You're saying risk factor for cardiovascular problems. Okay, perfect. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, American Urologic Association guidelines nowadays, actually, I mean, you probably know this as a pharmacist, you know, recently, as, as recent as 2015, there was a black box warning on testosterone that said, if I give you this, I got to tell you, it's going to, it could potentially cause heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, what have you. And the reality is, is that the, the urologic community since then has done a ton of research and, and actually proven that to be false. And some of the early studies were flawed. Um, but, but the reality is, is that low testosterone is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular, poor cardiovascular outcomes. Okay. So what you're telling me is testosterone does not cause heart attacks. Is that what the, what society said that? Uh, the American Urologic Association in the the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. Says testosterone does not cause heart attacks. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that because I get that question all the time. And myself, even before, you know, another study came out with that follow-up about, you know, when testosterone caused heart attacks, to me, it wasn't rational. It didn't, because if testosterone caused heart attacks, then 19-year-old men would have heart attacks, right? Correct. <laughs> I mean, that's just rational thinking right there when in reality, most men that have heart attacks have low testosterone. That's yeah. that's just the, you know, so, and there's a lot of factors there. We could actually have a complete episode just on that. Yeah. I believe there's, yeah. what it is, is, you know, a lot of times when those men have a heart attack, whether they're on testosterone or not on testosterone, because testosterone is cardiovascularly protective, right. um, you know they've had low testosterone for thirty years. The damage has been done. So right. even if they go on testosterone when they're seventy, the, the cardiovascular damage has been done. That's my opinion. Right. Well, and yeah. remember, the heart is a big muscle. What's better, it is. What's better for a muscle than testosterone? It, there is no is better, better than, than than testosterone for a muscle. I, I don't know it to be honest with you. I mean. Uh, that's it's and, and to some extent remember testosterone plays a role in your lipid profiles right so absolutely there, there is some evidence too that suggests that that replacing testosterone can essentially kind of you know restore normal lipid profiles and also kind of remove over time right not right away but over time remove some of the plaque buildup that that kind of clogs up your arteries right and so that's what causes heart attacks in the first place is that clogging of the arteries and the plaque buildup that that leads to ultimate blockage and, and lack of blood flow. Um, and so, you know, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, the, one of the other risk factors for, for heart problems is is hypertension, right? High blood pressure. And and there's some decent research that shows that, you know, testosterone can, can kind of significantly change your blood pressure parameters to the point where you know, I know folks that are that are pulling people off of blood th- blood pressure medications after they you know restore their testosterone and get them back to a more chronic uh, you know normal level. Take it one step further. Uh, remember, diabetes is a huge huge cause of coronary artery disease, vascular disease, et cetera, vascular dysfunction in general. Uh, there's a study out of Germany where they had about I think it's just shy of 500 patients who were on everything from metformin to full dose, you know, injection insulin. Uh, and they, when they screened these men, they found, you know, that a certain amount of them were hypogonadal as well, or testosterone. And when they replaced the testosterone uh, over, not, not right away, because again, diabetes doesn't develop overnight. It doesn't, it doesn't go away overnight either, but not, not an, over a period of time with chronic testosterone therapy and replacement to a normal level, uh, about 30% of the patients in the study actually reversed their diabetes. I've they seen a study like that. And you just think about all the drugs that we prescribe that could be if we check the man's testosterone, it could be low testosterone related, um, you know, Viagra for erectile dysfunction. Did you check their testosterone? No. Prozac for depression. Did you check their testosterone? No. Um, you know, uh, Lipitor for high cholesterol. Did you check their testosterone? No. (laughs) I mean, you know, 
to your knowledge, because you may you may you may know more than I do, but to your knowledge, any of these newer diabetes medications on the market are are do any of them have the potential to reverse diabetes? Absolutely not. In fact, Dr. Wallen, I will be honest with you. Um, in general, and I can speak for my wife too. In general, I don't believe in any. I don't care what medication it is. Um, for type 2 diabetes, I don't believe in any long-term treatment for type 2 diabetes for medication. Diabetes is a, in general, type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle-related issue. Correct. Um, It is a carbohydrate metabolism problem. You know, usually with type 2, obviously, it's it's hyperinsulinemia. You have too much insulin because you're eating like crap, usually too much carbs, too much processed foods, you're producing too much insulin. So then what do we do? We give patients more insulin. So, Or what do we do? We give them a drug where they pee out their extra glucose. To me, that one doesn't make any sense either. It's like – and then it's like you pee out your extra glucose. And as you, you as a urologist, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this. And then all of a sudden, you get UTIs. Really? Now, why would that happen? Well, and, and so, take it one step further, you know, you mentioned some benefits for, for men for, you know, brain health and heart health and, and insomnia and, and erections and stuff. But what's the what's the other most common problem that older women have as they get older and go through menopause other than UTIs? Osteoporosis. Bone, right? Osteoporosis. Right. So yep. Testosterone is known to be a bone builder. And you can actually, there's some studies out there that show that you can actually increase bone, new bone growth by eightfold, by eight times with testosterone replacement. Well, this is what I tell um, <laughs> women, tell men too, because, you know, as you know, men get osteoporosis also, not yeah. as common as men, or not as common as women, but it's not from lack of estrogen. It's not, and not that men don't have estrogen, but it's not from right. lack of estrogen. It's not from lack of a progesterone. It's from lack of testosterone. Right. Um, so, and, and women, you know, how many women are on medications, Fosamax or what have you for um, osteoporosis? And we keep it on them for the rest of their life, which right. there's a lot of debate. I, I'm not a big believer in those medications because they, they will build new bone, but it's brittle bone. Right. And if you, if you don't believe that, then think about when you go into the dentist and the first question they ask you is if you're on those medications, they will refuse to pull your teeth because your jaws, your jaw will shatter. Yeah. So if it's making weak jaw bones, it's making weak femur yeah. bones also. Yeah. So um, I think testosterone, it's a lack of hormones, right? And I think estradiol and progesterone also because those are in the bone remodeling process also. Correct. But there is not a better hormone than testosterone to build bone it is an anabolic hormone right Right. it builds muscle it builds bone so testosterone is amazing for that and that's why when you know um, women are being talked to about possibly going off their hormone replacement i'll ask them about their bone health well yeah my bones are better now and i'm like okay so how long would your doctor keep you on a medication for osteoporosis well, probably the rest of my life. Okay. It's kind of like estrogen vaginal cream. Right. Well, when do, when do I get to go off this? I tell them, I'm like, you're not going to magically start producing your own estrogen. So if right. you want to prevent UTIs, you want to prevent urinary incontinence, and you want to prevent atrophic vaginitis, you'll stay on this a couple days a week for the rest of your life. Right. You know, so and we've got 89-year-old women on, on estrogen vaginal cream. So right. I, love your, I love your education on testosterone. I can tell you um, – you are ahead of most physicians that we work with when it comes to testosterone replacement because that's not a view in, in most people in traditional type practices. And that's probably a sign of why you're going on to practice on your own because you felt like um, you could offer patients better than what you're doing. Um, you know, so I, I'm not yeah, surprised. We're you're talking not. about you know, the opioid crisis, right? A lot of, lot of pain-related symptoms are bone pain. And I mean, Larry Lipschultz's group at, out of Baylor, they showed, you know, you can reverse about 50% of bone pain by reversing someone's hypogonadal status, reversing their testosterone, right? So, well, I mean, that's a huge way to avoid uh, some medicines that have significant side effects and significant problems, addictive side effects or addictive problems. And, and you know, I mean, by just giving someone their natural hormones back. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> I love it. So another question, when we talk about hormones a lot, we talk about um, for men, especially, and testosterone for men, we always get the question about PSA. 
Right. So I, I, I haven't asked you, asked you this question before the show, so I have no idea where your answer is going. Um, so talk about PSA. I have some strong opinions about PSA, and I have some questions I'll ask you. So go ahead and tell us about, about PSA um, testing. Well, I mean, PSA testing, I think, you know, the reality is, is that it has been called into question, um, you know, uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, the USPTF, you know, downgraded it to a class D. They've since re-upgraded it back to a class C where they recommend screening. And, and I think the reality is, is what you have to understand about prostate cancer is that prostate cancer does not usually cause symptoms until it becomes symptomatic, which means... Uh, or excuse me, let me rephrase that. It does not usually cause symptoms until it becomes metastatic, which means that it's spread beyond the prostate. Right. Sitting in the prostate, it can smolder and smolder and smolder, but until it attaches to a bone or does something else, you know, in the pelvis where there's lymphadenopathy outside the prostate and maybe it's entrapping a nerve or something like that, you know, it does not usually cause other symptoms. And so it can, it, the, unfortunately, the PSA is not perfect. Um, it, there are other things like a, a large prostate. I mean, we know that men's prostates literally get bigger as they get older. Um, they all, that also correlates with PSAs going up with prostate size. Um, you know, but there are also other things like urinary tract infections or prostatitis, or, you know, even if you've ejaculated within two or three days before your blood test, that can cause the blood test to be elevated. Okay. Can we... Hold that. Hold your thought where you're going. I want to. I want to. I want to hit on that because I'll have men that will call me and they'll say, "Well, you know, my PSA went from a one to a five. Right. And I'll ask the question. It's like, okay, so when did you get tested? Well, I got tested, you know, early in the morning. Well, did the did the doctor ask you about you know your ejaculatory status? No, he didn't. Well, I had sex with my wife that morning. I'm like, you know. I'm not a doctor, but I will tell you that, you know, ejaculation can affect PSA. So for them to recommend a prostate biopsy without asking that question, right. I think is, I don't know what to call it, but I just don't think it's given the whole picture. So can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the, the remember, uh, especially in the traditional medical model where you have to click 75 million boxes and, and fill out all these different questions to be able to satisfy insurance just to get paid, uh, as long as they don't deny you on the back end, um, you know, the reality is, is that there's, there's so much that you have to get through, right, in, in each patient visit. And as doctors are squeezed into smaller and smaller windows, which they can do that, that becomes difficult. And so if, if either the doctor doesn't know about the ejaculation problems or, or with the PSA or what have you, but honestly, in my practice, I always check a second PSA. That's uh, first of Perfect. all, that's, that's always something that's done. Um, and actually and how, how long after uh, I would say at least, uh, I at least have them abstain from ejaculation for a week before, and I would say usually I'll probably wait a couple of weeks and just kind of let things shake out a little bit just to see, you know, um, and, and I guess the other thing that I didn't quite get to before you uh, posed your question was if somebody is a cyclist or a motorcyclist, you know, certainly you remember when you sit on saddles, uh, you're basically sitting on a thin tissue that's right uh, superficial to the prostate. And so you can put some pressure on there. And I have seen guys who have abstained from riding for a little while and their PSAs kind of come back down, right? And so, you know, from that standpoint, we always check a second blood test. You know, I think in this day and age, even though the U.S. is is a little bit uh, slow to kind of pick up on, on a lot of medical innovation uh, as compared to Europe, um, I think most people uh, would probably still potentially order an MRI prior to doing it. Uh, mainly because you can find little lesions in the prostate that that could potentially be concerning. And remember, it, it, in the standard biopsy is really just done in a template fashion with an ultrasound. First of all, you cannot see prostate cancer with an ultrasound. Number two, uh, if you uh, if you do just a template biopsy, again, you're poking twelve little specific areas with a needle. Uh, the way that, the best way that I have to describe that to patients is that you, if you think about an apple, you poke at twelve little specific spots in the apple. And you may find bad spots, you may miss bad spots, you may, you know, you, you're not taking out the whole gland. Obviously, we're not going to do that because we already talked about earlier in the show that 
you know, if I take out your whole gland, even if I spare your nerves, there's still an 80% chance you're never going to penetrate again. Right. That's a problem. There's, yeah. there's significant side effects associated with surgery to where we reserve that for the people who actually really need it from a cancer control standpoint. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, I think the MRIs are valuable because you avoid poking, prodding. Plus, it, it does give you some vision. Uh, because if you if you have uh, lesions on your MRI, similar to if you had a lesion on your kidney, we can use actually special technology nowadays that, that allows us to take your MRI pictures and specifically fuse that with a live ultrasound image and specifically target those little lesions. And so it's a much more calculated biopsy. Now, usually I think the, the best studies that are out there these days show that if you do the template, the standard template fashion, the 12 little spots, and any little lesion that you found on the MRI together is better than either alone. Uh, so I, I usually, again, if somebody comes in with any type of elevated PSA, I always go through those screening questions with them. You know, certainly getting a, a urine culture and checking for infections um, and, uh, and or checking for symptoms in a large prostate. Because if somebody has, you know, uh, there's a, a thing called an AUA symptom score, which is basically seven different characteristics about your avoiding habits ranked one to five. Uh, it's things like frequency, urgency, you know, the sensation of completely emptying when you go to the restroom and not having to go to the restroom again very shortly, how many times you get up at night to pee, this type of stuff. And so I always have them fill out one of those surveys as well, because for me, if your survey is 35 out of 35, you know, to, on your urination score, because you're, you're struggling, uh, I'm thinking UTI, I'm thinking, you know, enlarged prostate, I'm thinking, you know, less likely cancer. Uh, and remember, your PSA can still be climbing up a little bit on you, even with just an enlarged prostate So, and or infections, right? So, uh, again, usually always repeating the blood tests at least a couple weeks later, at least with education about ejaculation and avoiding any saddle activities like motorcycles or bicycles. And then, uh, you know, usually in my practice, I, I tend to um, – um, promote uh, the use of an MRI first prior to any poking and prodding because I think, number one, it avoids invasive procedures if we don't necessarily have to. Now, again, the caveat to that is that an MRI is not perfect. There is still about a 20% chance you miss really, really small lesions less than one centimeter, um, but it's better than no vision at all. And so, uh, again, because the ultrasound, when you do a biopsy, usually it's done ultrasound-based and, and ultrasound cannot tell you, yes, there's cancer, no, there's not. And so you're really just poking the apple and, and sampling the 12 spots, but whether or not those spots are the bad spots or not, you don't really know until you get the pathology. Right. So, so yeah, always, always rechecking and, and making sure, you know, double, double checking the blood test. Cause again, you know, I've even seen where we've checked it a couple different times and it, it goes up and down and, you know, it kind of does a little yo-yo stuff, which is, is a hard part. I mean, medicine is not a perfect science, right? So, there's no, there's no, and that's where, you know, to some extent, again, you know, you kind of asked about direct care and that type of thing. I think direct care allows for more individualized medicine uh, without the constraints of insurance regulation and what the insurance will allow you to get performed, right? And so from that standpoint, it, everybody's different. So why would we slap, you know, the same, the same set of constraints on, on each individual person, um, you know, when we all are, are, have different genetics, we all have, you know, different uh, ways that we're raised. We all have different environments that we're exposed to throughout our lives. And, and that makes medicine, you know, to some extent a little bit tricky sometimes. Yeah. And that's why a personal, you know, personal relationship with their physician, like you would have in direct care is so important. So one other comment or question for you, actually. So um, a prostate exam in itself can increase PSA, correct? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's a variety of studies that have tried to capture that. I mean, I think it's kind of the same as long as well as the ejaculation, right? To some extent, because in, at least in theory, because if I'm sitting there pushing on your prostate, uh, you know, the reality is, is I think from an ejaculation standpoint, kind of what happens that causes potential increase in PSA is that remember, 
after the, the sperm dumps into the seminal vesicle and the prostate, that dumps into the urethra, and then the pelvic muscles contract to be able to kind of push it out the end of the penis and, and do the true ejaculation portion of the of the process, right? And so, you know, from that standpoint, that that squeezing of the area, you know, you can kind of almost think in think of it as kind of milking some of the the uh, components out of the prostate, right? And so that's where PSA comes from. It's prostate specific antigen, right? And so if you're, if you're, you know, again, that's where compression of the, of the bike seat or motorcycle seat or right. kind of the compression of the, of the, of the muscles in the pelvis from ejaculation or, you know, alternatively, I think if somebody's really truly mashing on the prostate, uh, you know, the run of the mill, quick finger in just kind of feeling for, for, um, nodules and stuff. I mean, unless you're kind of truly kind of mashing on the prostate, um, I don't know if that's going to do much. And I think actually the re most recent study I've seen on that part, you know, they, they kind of suggested against. Um, but again, in theory, uh, especially if you're, you know, really, I mean, cause for prostatitis, sometimes we'll do, you know, kind of prostate massage, right. And try to kind of express the, the infection expressed the nastiness out of the prostate to kind of relieve okay. the symptomatology. Right. And so if you're doing that, you know, I think that's certainly a different story than a quick kind of finger in and swipe around and, and exit. Um, but I mean, uh, again, uh, sometimes strange things happen or, or different things happen. So, um, that's why repeat testing is so important. Correct. Yeah. 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 I, I love it. Wow. That, least, I tell you what, one data point for sure. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Wallen, wow, we got to have you on again because yeah. we have already been talking for an hour and 10 minutes. And this is stuff we just, uh, you know, our listeners and viewers like this information. And of course, we're passionate about it at our pharmacy because we just talk a lot about this stuff when it comes to hormone replacement. And we just barely touched on men's hormone replacement with, um, with you. And we could talk a whole, well, I could talk a whole day about that. I'm very yeah. passionate. It and too. So maybe we'll have to have you on again and talk about that subject. I really, really appreciate it. So we're going to wrap up our session here or uh, um, another show. Um, but yeah, we definitely have to have you on. So let, let's keep in touch. And Sounds listeners good. and viewers, you've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham and Dr. Wallen. Thank you for um, being on today and thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, listen to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. We'll see you Monday, um, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern at, or Pacific as we stream live on my Facebook and the Mosley Professional Pharmacies YouTube site. Thank you so much for listening.